0: This is Made at UCL, the podcast, bringing you closer to the UCL research answering life's big questions. From engineering to art, healthcare to space exploration, ancient artifacts to the technology of the future. Episode two, transfer. Hello, I'm Susie and welcome to our second episode. This month, I have stories for you about things that transfer from one place to another. We'll be talking disease transfer, transfer of information, and for our first story, the transfer of forensic evidence. Last episode, we stepped into the office of Professor Ruth Morgan. So I'm a professor of crime and forensic science. Head of UCL's Centre for Forensic Science. So we have two major themes there. We talked about how human bias can sometimes lead people to wrongly interpret forensic evidence. How can we understand what it means? And then we're also looking at how... This time, we're heading back to further explore the complexities of forensic science and technology. 2000, a young woman went clubbing with her boyfriend. During the night out, the two had an argument and parted ways. Two days later, she was found dead on a golf course. The case went to court and the boyfriend and one of his friends were convicted of murder. Forensic evidence was crucial in charging the two men.
1: In the judges summing up, He presented to the court that the critical point on which the verdict must rest was on what they made of the forensic science evidence. They'd found these um, particles that were on the victim and in the suspect's vehicle. And the prosecution's case was that these particles were very rare and that the fact that they were on the suspect's vehicle and on the victim meant that the victim must have sat in the vehicle very shortly before death.
0: The particles examiners found on the woman's clothing were called cerium and lanthanum. They're
1: tiny little spheres, and you could get about three of them within one hair's
0: width. These tiny spheres were also found on the seat of the van the two men had been driving. They were seen as proof of their involvement in the murder. And that
1: was for very reasonable reasons. One was that they were made of rare earth elements, so considered to
0: be rare. Which makes sense. If something is called rare, you would assume it to be, well, rare. The second assumption was that... They were incredibly small particles, very, very rounded. So if they would go on to clothing, it was reasonable to think that they might fall off quite quickly. In other words, the men must have been with the victim much sooner before her death than they claimed. Three years after the guilty verdict sent two men to prison, Ruth started investigating the transfer of various types of particles, and she found something really quite important. We found that these particles actually are quite common that they're all over the place it turns out that the reason that cerium and lanthanum are called rare earth elements is not because they are in fact rare but because they are found within rocks which are spread quite evenly across the earth and therefore not found in high quantities in any one place in fact they can be found in lots of everyday objects such as cigarette lighters when you flick a disposable lighter you're getting four or five thousand particles every time At the time of the case, there was no public smoking ban. The victim had been in a club the night of the murder, so many lighters would have been flicked that night, releasing cerium and lanthanum all over the place.
1: And we then did some experiments looking at those particles on clothing and how long they last, and we found that after 18 hours there was still a very significant proportion of those particles still on the clothing, so that increased the time window when those particles could have been transferred on to the clothing. So on that basis, it was shown that the particles
0: weren't as significant as had been originally thought in the original trial. Essentially, the case had rested on forensic evidence that had been totally misunderstood. Ruth's findings on lighter particles led to the two men's sentences being quashed, and they were released from prison. This might seem like a special case, but in a study published last year, Ruth's team has found that forensic evidence is being misunderstood in an alarming number of investigations. Yeah, so we looked at cases
1: at the Court of Appeal
0: between 2010
1: and 2016 and we found just under a 1,000 cases where criminal evidence had been critical in the original trial and that would have included forensic science evidence. And when we looked into those cases, we found that in 22% of them there was
0: misinterpretation of evidence. This misinterpretation includes a lack of understanding about how evidence is transferred from one place to another. This doesn't just apply to weirdly-named rare-earth particles, but also to the evidence we most commonly associate with forensics – DNA. A woman was found murdered. And they found um, male DNA on her cardigan buttons. In this second murder case, investigators trace this DNA from her buttons, as well as from skin cells found under her fingernails, to a taxi driver. The man was arrested and spent eight months in prison as he awaited trial. This time, however, the defence was able to call into question the evidence that had been used to charge the man. The scenario that the
1: defence presented as to how this man's DNA was on the victim's cardigan buttons when he denied having killed her centred around the fact that he was a taxi driver and she had been in the taxi and in giving her change at the end of the journey, she had received the change that he'd handled, put that in her purse, And somehow there'd been his DNA on those coins,
0: which then transferred onto her hands, which then she then transferred onto her cardigan. The defence also explained that as the taxi driver had a skin condition, he shed more cells than the average person, and so his skin could easily have ended up under her fingernails. The taxi driver was exonerated, found not guilty, but he'd already spent time in prison for a crime he didn't commit. There are many reasons that forensic evidence might be misinterpreted in this way, Often, it's because detectives, barristers, judges and jurors view forensics as the kind of evidence that can't be argued with. Modern forensic technology is so sensitive now that it can give us all kinds of information about a crime scene. And more information seems to offer a better chance at solving a case. You only have to be speaking in a room for about just under
1: a minute and it's possible to detect your DNA.
0: How would your DNA transfer?
1: (laughs) So, I mean, so when when you're speaking, (laughs) there's... There is, there is saliva, but there's also other ways that our DNA can be transferred. Each of us loses between 30 and 40,000 skin cells every single hour. So the quantity of biological material that it is possible to recover in a, in a room where you've been sitting or where you've been speaking is quite significant.
0: And as the technology develops, it gets more sensitive and can pick up more of that biological information like skin cells.
1: I often say forensic science is a technological success story because what we can now detect, the accuracy with which we can detect it, the speed that we can do that um, is just increasing all the time. As that sensitivity has increased, it's actually raised a number of new challenges that we need to be able to address. So it's now not enough for us to find, say, gunshot residue on your jacket to know that you've fired a gun. It's not enough to know that it's your DNA on a weapon. It could be that there are other ways that that DNA
0: got there. Ruth and her colleagues are conducting all kinds of experiments to help us understand what happens when DNA or other particles transfer. For example, they've been firing guns in the lab and looking at how the tiny particles that make up gun residue, things like barium, antimony and previously lead, move once the gun has been shot.
1: If you fire a gun, you will get gunshot residue on you. What we're seeing is that it is possible for you to transfer that gunshot residue onto somebody who hasn't fired a gun if you make a direct contact with them, say, shake a hand. Um, We've also seen that it's possible that if you touch a door handle having fired a gun and then somebody else who hasn't fired a gun touches that door handle,
0: there can be a transfer through that intermediary object. So, if you happen to be listening to this podcast while waiting for your train to work... You're waiting at the station, the train pulls up.
1: You press the button to open the doors, you get on, you maybe touch a grab rail, you then get off the other end. You grab onto the escalator. There are various things that you will be touching that lots of other people have touched. Our experiments are indicating that it is possible if somebody else has fired a gun and touched that grab rail that you then go to touch, that there could be a secondary transfer taking place. It's a very complex picture, but there are definitely ways that you could have residues on you that don't necessarily mean you fired
0: a gun this morning. I think I'll be looking at people on train platforms a bit more closely from now on. Clearly that's not the answer. So what is? I think a number of different things. I think one of the things is that we
1: see a lot of forensic science in the media... And that's really great because it's really good at showcasing the capabilities that science can have. So that's that's a real positive of of the way that forensic science is portrayed in the media. But I think what it has also done is it's given an impression of the kinds of answers that science can give, which in the real world, it can't always do. So I think one of the things we need to be much better at is knowing what kind of questions can science give us answers to and what kind of questions... Can it not at the moment? OK, so what can it tell us? We're very good at what? What is something? You know, it, what is it made of? Is it barium? Is it antimony? We're very good at who? Is it, is it this person's finger mark or is it this person's DNA? Um, what we need to know is how did that DNA get there and when did it get there? Because if we can answer those two questions as well, then we can start telling you what the evidence means in a particular case.
0: So those experiments firing guns in a lab, for example, are helping to inform the how and the when.
1: And then there's also the understanding of the human decision-making part and understanding expertise and understanding better how external factors might be influencing what we're seeing and what we're understanding. Um, So I'm, I'm a real believer that we need to understand the The physical trace, but also the human investigators and the human scientists who are engaging with it, because both of those two things are absolutely critical to getting the answers.
0: So shows like CSI might suggest that forensic science is clear-cut, but in order to prevent wrongful convictions, we need to be more realistic than that. There is a perception that science can give you a very clear black-and-white answer, and actually
1: it's very rare that we can give black and white answers there's always some uncertainty because we're dealing with a very complex world and so how we communicate what we do know and what we don't know is really important
0: it doesn't mean forensic science is not good at all it's
1: no and i think that that's no really important and i think sometimes people are saying oh you know you're sweeping the credibility of forensic science away and it's absolutely not it's um It's showcasing the absolutely incredible things that the science can do and the kinds of questions it can answer, but it's also being very clear about where there are things that we still don't know and where we need to be investing in finding answers to those things so that we can know and that we can continue to grow the capabilities that forensic science
0: can offer. Understanding how science works is really crucial, especially in an age where there is a growing awareness of scientific uncertainty and where experts are often dismissed. And, as Ruth says, that includes being honest about what forensic science can and can't tell us. Our next story takes us from the transfer of gun residue to the transfer of information. And it starts with a light.
2: So, imagine that you have a light, like an LED and you switch it on and off, but you switch it on and off really, really quickly, much faster than you can notice with your eyes. So it looks like the light's on all the time, but in actual fact, it's switching on and off. And then suppose that we switch it on and off in a pattern that corresponds to some information that we want to send. So, for example, if we want to stream a video on YouTube, in essence, that dilutes to a binary sequence of ones and zeros data. So you can impress that series of ones and zeros onto the LED, onto the light so it flickers with that pattern and then on your laptop or phone or computer or whatever you can sense that series of information the ones and zeros, which translates to a video that you might want to watch or internet or a game that you might want to play or or so on.
0: So you turn a light on and off really fast and that can send a video to a computer.
2: Exactly, that's right.
0: This is Dr. Paul Haig an expert in visible light communications, which is basically Wi-Fi, but on light. It's a new technology in development, and UCL is one of the places that Paul and his colleagues have been working to make it a reality. What it means is that in the near future, the light bulbs in our ceilings won't just be lighting up our rooms, but sending signals to computers and other devices. We will be getting the internet not through broadband routers, but through LED light bulbs.
2: If that makes any sense whatsoever,
0: I mean, it doesn't make any
2: sense.
0: But. <laughs> whether it makes sense to you or whether, like me, it only half makes sense and the rest seems like magic, Wi-Fi technology is going to make big changes within the next five to ten years. Firstly, it can send a lot of data much faster than traditional Wi-Fi because light cycles a frequency which is much faster than radio waves. Each little LED lamp will each be turning on and off really fast and sending loads of information out into the world. And let's be honest... We all appreciate fast internet.
2: The current speed record in, in VLC, Invisible Light Communications, is about 17 gigabits per second, which is, or maybe more, I'm, I'm not sure, I think it's about 17 gigabits per second, which is 17 billion pieces of information every second, which is something like three Blu-ray discs every one second, which is rapid, it's really fast. And if anybody can watch three Blu-ray discs in one second, it's... It's even more impressive.
0: It's true. I've never watched three movies at the same time before, let alone in one second. But more than just fast internet, Paul told me about some applications that could even be life-saving.
2: One really important and interesting aspect for me is not data communications inside your house or your office or anywhere you want to stream videos because wi-fi does quite a good job of that but it's actually in cars and transport systems where you might use the brake lights of the car in front of you as a an early warning system for you for your car so you could put a small set of photo detectors that sense the light and convert it into electricity on your bonnet and then if the car in front of you suddenly brakes the red lights come on and instead of you having to react to that car suddenly braking and potentially having an accident actually the photo detector will read that warning sign and and slowly automatically brake your car to avoid kind of traffic collisions and so on. So I think that's one super cool um, application of the technology. I think that's really exciting and has a big future. And the other one is cancer research. So we have this new thread of development where we're looking at how the light signals can um, measure oxygen inside tissue. And that translates to tumor growth. And I'm completely ignorant in this area, so I can't tell you any more than that. That's what I've understood so what we're doing what we're starting to do now is develop plastic foils with lights and detectors on that you can actually place on the tissue and pulse light through it so so that's light with the signal on top of it and then at the receiver measure the signal and see how it's changed from what we what we transmitted and that corresponds to uh somehow by some magic uh the oxygen level inside the tumor and therefore we can gain a lot of information about um whether or not somebody does or doesn't have cancer and what stage it is and and how it's you know kind of developing and so on
0: does seem a bit like magic
2: it is a little bit like magic but there's a lot of clever people that do a lot of clever things and i'm not one of them i'm afraid
0: (laughs) well you must be a little bit because (laughs) no it's a
2: massive team you'd be surprised you'd be surprised
0: so here's the thing Paul's own expertise is in something called digital signal processing which essentially boils down to finding ways to filter out interference in the signals that these devices send to make them as fast as possible.
2: That's where my expertise lie, and that's what I like to kind of mess around doing.
0: Now, he's got to be pretty clever to be able to do this, but he couldn't do it alone. And more than that, he couldn't come up with the idea of how to apply this technology to cancer diagnosis without a whole team of experts, each with their own specialisms.
2: So there's a big collaboration. There's a collaboration that includes UCL Engineering, Yanis Papakonstantino and Manish Tawari, the Great Ormond Street Hospital, which is Paolo Di Coppi and, and, and also myself, in newcastle and this is a collaboration that includes proper doctors if you want the 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 people that do the surgeries and so on and and save people's lives and us who like to play engineering games and uh, these we have kind of complementary skills together so we're mechanical engineers electrical engineers a little bit of biomedical engineering in the middle and all of those skills together make a solution that we can then give to the doctors and maybe they can apply to their patients down the line somewhere.
0: Now, forgive me for this analogy because it's very much on the nose. But I can't help thinking of all those experts as though they were all the little lights, turning on and off, sending and receiving information themselves. I've sometimes heard people being critical of academics and of the amount of money that goes into research funding. I've heard people say that researchers ought to get a real job. Paul's own dad doesn't really understand what he does.
2: Five years working in a university, and told him a million times that I'm working, but he still always tells me when you're going to finish school. So,
0: And sure, a lot of what goes on at universities is about learning and experimenting, and sometimes this hits dead ends. Or it might find something that is only useful in a very, very small way. But sometimes, when a number of people come together and swap ideas and share information, they can find solutions to much, much bigger problems. A lot of this is based on chance. But that sort of chance can only come about when funding allows open, cooperative environments to be created and transfers of information can take place from one human to another. It's for this reason that research councils are keen to fund something called interdisciplinary research.
2: So that means that you organise a group with people who have completely different expertise than you. You have an idea and you say, this might work, this might be really cool. So you get together with some people in a different department that might know about those things and you say, well... What what can we do together? How can we solve these problems? And then, you know, over a coffee or a beer or whatever, you might have a conversation where somebody has a piece of expertise, for example, in healthcare, which I have no experience. I have experience in signal processing and optics, and say, well, actually, you have this problem in, in connected health, and I can see a solution to that based on my expertise, and I can say to my colleague, well, actually, why don't we try this? And because of the fact that we've had the conversation, because we've had the funding and the opportunity, that might lead to a thread of research that significantly improves society and maybe solves one specific problem. cancer detection came about kind of in the same way so uh, it's really cool when those those type of things happen and it's so natural and also then when you start doing those projects you're really excited about it and and you know you know the potential of what you're doing and you can see that there could be an outcome and uh, it's all very exciting.
0: When we decided to cover this story I was really determined to pin down exactly how this magical light communication works but I realise that what's more important is how this technology came to be, and how it continues to be developed through specialists working collectively, transferring their knowledge from one person to another. And you know, when you like think about the universe yeah. as a whole, yeah. and you get like a bit teary because it's just like, whoa. Okay. Yeah. Does that do? You, is that just me, or?
2: Um, I can't relate personally, <laughs> but but go ahead.
0: Okay. Well, that's how I get, and then I used to get like that about computers because it just seems. And the same with internet, like it it does seem like magic and it does seem like, you know, how did humans make that happen?
2: It's just clever people doing stuff. I think when people have some interest in what they do and they really like, you know, like spending their time on that and they're given the opportunity and the resources, people can do magic.
0: The final story is also pretty magic, but this time, it's about preventing a transfer from taking place. HIV is no doubt a disease that you've heard of before. But when I found out about this UCL research, I was amazed that its findings are not known by every single one of us.
3: So I'm Alison Roger.
4: So my name's Simon Collins. I'm a Professor of Infectious Diseases at University College London. I'm an HIV-positive treatment activist uh, at an organisation called HIV iBase. And I also work at the Royal Free as an infectious disease consultant. Uh, we produce lots of information for HIV-positive people about treatment, and there's some resources there about prevention and the way HIV is transmitted.
0: Alison and Simon worked together on a study called the Partner 2 study. Alison led the research and Simon was a community representative who helped to make it possible. It had been suspected for some time that if you had HIV and were taking the right antiretroviral treatment, you could have unprotected sex without passing on the virus.
4: Lots of people were already pretty convinced that within their partnership it was safe. and Lots of doctors were also saying this. There was data going back to 2000. So that's almost 20 years ago. Some doctors had little bits of evidence uh, seeing that the transmissions didn't occur if viral load was, was dramatically lower from being on treatment.
0: But there was not enough data to prove this was definitely the case, which is where the Partner 2 study came in. We recruited about a 1,000 couples over the time, one positive, one negative.
3: Not
4: asking anyone to change what they were doing, just to record. it went for the last few months. How often did you have sex? Roughly what you did, so we can work out what the risks were, if there were different risks, and then slowly compile that data over what turned out to be 10 years.
0: And in those 10 years, they got a lot of data.
3: They had sex without condoms 77,000 times, and that's a lot of sex. But despite that, there were no transmissions from the positive partner on suppressive treatment to the negative partner. We're all very clear now that if you are on
0: suppressive treatment and you have HIV, you're sexually non-infectious... If your viral load is undetectable, you cannot transmit HIV to your partner. It's basically as if you don't have the virus. And in order to get this vital message across, the team needed it to be heard.
4: The press coverage was remarkable. Overnight, we suddenly had Channel 4, BBC One, BBC Two. Sky News were pulling people in. It was so dramatically powerful.
3: And we did that deliberately. But it wasn't just because, you know, the study had ended and we wanted a bit of a splash. We thought it was a really important message to get out. And something that became clear, I did a lot of the interviews, was how different our thinking was and our knowledge was compared to the wider population.
0: The researchers were surprised by the gap in knowledge between themselves and the general public. But this was also true for people with HIV and doctors too. People struggled to accept the finding, even though the evidence was so clear.
4: On one level... Doctors, who are often quite conservative people, may need a little bit of reassuring and persuading with the data and actually uh, make the jump from saying we think it's a very low risk to actually say it's a zero risk. That's a big jump for a doctor. And so that involved getting doctors to a point where they would realise that they're not suddenly going to be sued because someone's coming through the door saying, actually, look what happened when we stopped using condoms. It's not going to happen. And so in the same way that medical professionals need support and need the results highlighted and explained, it's the same for HIV organisations. Within HIV-positive networks and support groups, lots of HIV-positive people are very surprised when they hear these results. They don't quite believe them. Most HIV positive people are incredibly worried about their partners, you know, even if their partners say, oh, it's fine, I'm not really worried about it, the HIV positive person is always worried about, well, you know, what, what happens if we, you know, are we a bit more safe or a bit less safe? If that was new and if you had spent all that time worrying about your partners, you need a little bit of time for this news to settle. It might take five, three months, six months or a year for that news to settle for them. They still might say, I appreciate the results of the study, but just in case, I'm going to carry on using condoms for a while. And then slowly, that level of acceptance gives them the option to change that aspect of their life if they want to. So it's not like we're running out to have condomless parties as soon as the news breaks. Actually, this is news that people found challenging and difficult to accept. If it takes time for HIV positive people to do that and it it takes time for HIV doctors to do that who understand all the science you can see the gap that there might be between the general public and our study results which means that needs much more of a widespread campaign. We need something on TV that explains this.
3: So we talk a lot about U equals U and, and people who have access to treatment, who people who are on treatment. So I think the remaining issue that we are very aware of is actually trying to test people early so that they can work out their status and trying to get people on treatment. And we're also very aware about stigma and discrimination. I mean, globally, a lot of people, the key populations affected by HIV are stigmatized for other reasons. So either we know in some countries still same-sex relationships are criminalised. We know in many countries being HIV positive is criminalised. And we know that a lot of the criminalisation laws based on HIV were actually rushed through in the 1980s. And they haven't evolved to keep up to date with the science. So, I mean, again, science can talk about it much better than I can. But there are people imprisoned on the basis of risks that our data set disproves. Um, so I do hope that a lot of this will also combat, especially in the US, Russia, particularly bad in terms of criminalising HIV and actually imprisoning people, not based on the kind of legal principles of, you know, intent or causation or any of them, just because they're HIV positive.
4: So, but the, the laws are being changed state by state in the US yes. in order to recognise that the, the laws were established at a time, you know, 30 or 40 years ago when there was very little knowledge and a lot of fear. And actually the the success of medicine has completely changed that.
3: I listened to a really interesting talk at the AIDS conference um, in Amsterdam last summer. And it was Robert Suttle. I don't know if you heard him, Simon. Um, He he was basically imprisoned in, I think, Louisiana. He was a gay man uh, who had a bad relationship break-up. Uh, He was on treatment, he was suppressed and his partner went to the police and he was imprisoned, he could have had ten years he needed a plea bargain for six months in a penitentiary there was no risk to his partner at all his partner remained negative but he was imprisoned for that and there are people who are worse than him so it's the, the whole thing about people being imprisoned when there was absolutely no risk to their partners
0: The PARTNER2 study has been an important finding for a campaign called U Equals U, which stands for Undetectable Equals Untransmittable. The U Equals U campaign aims to inform patients and healthcare providers about the amazing effect of proper treatment.
3: One of the key things I think PARTNER has done um, has really underpinned that campaign. And given that campaign, the confidence, which is now being rolled out globally. I mean, it's something like 900 organisations. Last time I looked, have signed up to this, including all the major health organisations.
4: It's fantastic to be included in a study with positive results. <laughs> you know, where the outcome is very simple to explain, yeah. you're on effective treatment, then doesn't whether you use condoms or not, you know, the HIV isn't something you need to be worried about.
3: The impact on telling people in clinic about U equals U I mean it's some I mean it's it's a hugely emotional thing for a lot of people, isn't it? You know, they they just didn't know. And so the could, fact give, that
4: give some examples of how well, uh I've
3: had people you know, people cry, you know, because this is just liberating for them. That you know, their deepest fear is that actually they're infectious and actually to know that they're not infectious. And we know from studies even from a couple of years ago, if you ask HIV positive people on treatment how infectious they think they are then a lot of them think that they're still infectious and we know that they're not. So it's just trying to get the word out, um, just to, to, to normalise this.
0: The study has been so beneficial to the community and so certain in its findings that Alison received an unexpected reaction when she presented it at a conference in Amsterdam. When I was presenting it and I gave the results and,
3: and a lot of people in the audience started clapping, which is unheard of for a scientific presentation. And You suddenly realised how much the results meant to people. Because yes, you get yeah. into this scientific mode, and it was actually quite emotional doing it. I made it through to the end.
4: But, I had a standing ovation. Well, like,
3: but it was just then you realised how much these results meant to people. Living with HIV, their partner's just liberating, I think. But, yeah, it was it was a big study. I mean, it's sort of, you know, Simon was involved. I was involved, you know, Andrew Phillips. Yeah, and so It was a big study group, and actually a lot of people put a lot of effort, time and effort, because we believed in the study and Monte the answer. And a, and a thousand couples. And a thousand couples. So, yeah, I always say thank you to the couples who gave their time and energy and without them we wouldn't have got the answer
4: all that energy going into those seventy-seven thousand times that people had sex we really appreciate you did this
3: <laughs> i did say that at conference once and a guy came up to me afterwards and said i took part in the study i'm more than happy to have sex for any study any time <laughs> but no the result men that aside the result
0: is a, such a positive yeah okay. great great, it's great news so spread the word. Tell your friends, family, your neighbours, the bus driver that takes you to work. Also, if you or somebody you know is affected by HIV, do check out the U Equals U campaign and Simon's organisation HIV iBase, that's i-base, which will provide you with all the information and links you might want to know more. That brings us to the end of this episode. If you've enjoyed what you've heard so far, do tell people about it. We're on all the usual social media and you can talk about the podcast with the hashtag Made at UCL. Made at UCL, the podcast, is made by me, Susie McCarthy. The executive producer is Nina Garthwaite. Additional reporting this episode from Isis Thompson. Mixing support from Mike Woolley. We'd like to thank all our researchers for welcoming us into their labs and offices. Hashtag Made at UCL is a campaign that brings to life disruptive thinking from UCL. Research presented in this episode was nominated and selected because of the impact it has made on everyday life and society. This episode is brought to you from UCL Minds, events, lectures and podcasts open to everyone.